I don't think I've ever had a life or death situation where my IRC logs saved me from certain deaths. Right. I don't think that that's likely to happen. That's like a hacker wet dream or something, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And why did you learn Perl? Just in case, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that was a terrible reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, learning Perl in general is terrible. So, yeah. Right. Well, I did learn Perl back a long time ago. Willingly, even. But that was because there were several tools at the company I was working at, and they were all written in Perl. So if I wanted to contribute to them, I had to learn the language. Yeah, there there so, are valid reasons to learn Perl. Like, learning right. that you shouldn't learn Perl. <laughs> but that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> I'm going to learn this here and prove that it's terrible for you so you don't have to. I'm, I'm doing this for you, listener. <laughs> talked about how I was wanting data from the past and I want people to keep that data for me. And I, I caught some flack from that from you, rightfully so, and, and from some of the listeners. I do want everything. I want my cake and I want to eat it too. And so it's, it's kind of been running around in my mind. I've been moving. The move is now done, but you know, after a move, you still have a lot of stuff. It's like, it's like tremors after an earthquake, right? You have a lot of things you still got to do. And I'm in that phase. And one of the things that I'm doing is going through the files and I'm realizing, boy, I have a lot of stuff. I have a lot of files. Do I need all these? And so I'm starting to question if my data retention policies are adequate, we'll say. And if your only goal is to make sure you always have the thing you need, then yes, keeping literally everything is perfectly ad adequate as long as you're taking steps to keep the important stuff, like in a fire safe or whatever. But um, it's... If that's, that's not the only goal, right? I want to keep everything I know that I'll need without knowing ahead of time what I need and for how long I need it, right? right? So that's kind of That's a tall order. That is a tall order. And keeping everything takes a lot of space, right? So I upgraded from uh, like a two or three drawer filing cabinet to a four drawer, which takes no extra room in this, extra, extra floor space in the room, but uh, this thing is really heavy. And having to, had to move that around, I'm like, do I really want this big steel heavy thing in, in my life? Can I downsize again? So all this is kind of brought to mind um, consideration of how long to keep things. Like uh, receipts, perhaps. That's a pretty easy one. If I, if I buy go groceries, am I going to care what groceries I bought in three years? Probably not. I have receipts back to 2015. I've been going through the bags recently. And I'm sitting there going, why do I keep all these? What, what is the value of all this? Uh, well, can let me ask this. How long do you think you, a person should keep a receipt for? Like for grocery stuff? Does it matter to keep it at all? Uh, so point of question. Okay. Are we talking about personal receipts or business receipts? Oh, personal receipts. For business, say, you have to keep them at least through tax season and then onwards in case you get audited. Right. right. So but for personal, personal stuff. For me, as soon as I record it, and it's, you know, in my ledger, then I don't need the receipt anymore unless it's something where I might need to do a return. So like keeping important receipts in a different, you go and buy a TV at Black Friday or something. You want to keep the receipt for that because right. those, those Black Friday TVs can be really dodgy. They can <laughs> they, be. They kind of unload the interesting stuff at that, that sale period, just, just so we're clear, everybody. And Cyber Monday too, same thing. 
Okay, so identifying important receipts, putting them aside, that makes good sense. Other stuff, as long as you've got it recorded in your accounting software, which we've talked about recently. I still have not resolved what accounting software I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it, which is also part of the discussion. But let's say I don't need to keep the physical receipt. Um, and There's no way to actually answer this question, but I'll go ahead and pose it. Do you think companies would be okay with an image of the receipt as proof of purchase for the purposes of a return? Depends on the company. Right. And it, not just the company, but the manager at that specific location. Good point. Because the company, like, let's say you bought a freezer at Lowe's. Uh, the, the company may be like, yeah, fine, you know, photocopy the receipt, keep that, you know, because it's a thermal paper, it's going to go away and die eventually anyway. So right. yeah, photocopy is fine. But then you actually go in and the person who's there at the, at the station is like, I need the receipt. This isn't, this isn't good enough. And then you're going to have to get the manager involved and who knows what the manager's going to say. Right. Yeah. So at Lowe's actually, I've had pretty good luck on this very thing. Mm -hmm. They've got a good system. They can right? actually pull it up. Yeah, exactly. As long as you give them, put the, the credit card back into their slot that you used to buy it, they can go and find all the transaction history and then they can go find the item. And if you haven't found it, then either you didn't buy it with that credit card or you maybe didn't buy it at all or you bought it with cash. At which point they would probably say, show me the receipt. Yeah, because the thing I love most is that they're saving my credit card information so they can pull back all of my transaction yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, I've had that thought too. I'm like, God, I hope they are hashing this. You know, one-way hash the credit card number, all the data. So that, that would be the logical way to do it, right? Because it's not just the number you get off the card read. It's, it's some other metadata too. So if you put all that together into some kind of data structure and then hash the data structure some number of times, I would assume that you've anonymized it enough that you can use that as an ID for storing a record. You could, so, but does that mean the developer wrote it that right. way? Right, exactly. There's a lot of faith there. But I, I don't have any tr control over what Lowe's does in their back-end system. It's just, it is very convenient. But at the same time, it's on my mind, like, I really hope they're doing this the right way. So for places like that, I, I imagine someone has gone to the trouble to catalog who can do what. We would it hope. Would be, yeah, we would hope. You know, some, someone somewhere has, has gone through this process already and... That information is out there. I just need to go look for it. So. See, the thing is, is like, I, I sit here and I say, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. That's what they're going to do. But yet then we had the target issue where, no, that was not the case. They had everything in the clear. They had yeah. the credit card number. They had the PIN number that they were saving, the everything. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, it's so bad. That was so bad. And I know it goes on. TJ Maxx. Mm -hmm. I don't ever, I've never shopped at TJ Maxx in my life. I don't tend to go shopping for women's dresses. But, oh, uh, come on, Jeff. Well, okay. I've never really seen a dress that I thought, man, I would look really good in that before. Uh, hold on but a second. Is, this doesn't mean you're happens. buying the dress for you. You could be buying the dress for a special lady in your life. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's true. But I mean, yeah, if you I, want to go down the cross-dressing route, is that, if that's where your brain goes immediately, that's fine. I don't judge. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're judging right now. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're judging. I'm, I'm, that, look, that says it all. <laughs> right. Anyway, let's just step Back from that, I only mentioned TJ Maxx because they're one of the, uh, they were, they're not the only one. They were one of the earliest of the big department stores to get hit. But I think I, we're hearing it all the time. I, I just now assume that my data is out there. Mm -hmm. It's the safer, safer assumption. Yeah. And in the case of the credit card stuff, I know specifically yeah. with Target, legally, they weren't allowed to retain that information. Right. But and they, they were. Do. So it, it's really hard for me to then go, oh, yeah, I'm sure these companies are doing the right thing when they're not even following the law. Yeah. So. That's really distressing. Well, what little law there is on this, right? right? Yeah. 
So I think it's um actually I don't even know if that's law. I think that may be credit card company regulation, maybe? No, I think I, I think financial the financial laws around um around that actually there there's a restriction on what they're allowed to save long term for this very right. reason. Okay. Yeah. Which they were violating. Yeah, they can save it for short term because they if there's a problem in the system and they need to rerun the transaction, that's allowed. But it is not supposed to be going into cold storage and sitting mm-hmm. there. Right. That's terrible. It's that's challenging to think about. We'll just, because we'll just put that, it that completely way. blows away all of the PCI rules. Yes, it does. For yeah. processing payments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And still it happens. It's, yeah. You know, who knows why or how that was allowed through. I guess when, for people that aren't very technical or are not developers, uh, when you go look at what a developer's done, it's in, potentially it's indistinguishable from magic. Right? So... Okay, it does here. Here's all the requirements. It meets all those requirements. Great, you have met the objective. So, I guess that is admonishment for those those of us out there. When you're designing something, make one of the requirements does not keep credit card data. Just like make sure it's right there in the requirements, and that just nips everything in the bud. Because if you have your credit card data stored anywhere, then that's provably against regulation or not uh, against the requirements document. No, so. if you allow them to store it, that's fine. And I believe they're actually allowed to save the card number itself. They just can't save the uh, the 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 PIN number if you're using the it as a debit, yeah. and or the yeah the checksum that's on the back. They're not supposed to save that, but they can save everything else. It's inadequate for the the um, transaction if they mm-hmm. they need those numbers as well as the credit card number. Yeah, but if you so. allow them to because you checked the box, well then mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. All bets are off. Yeah. So I actually know a company I work for, the way they handled that, because they didn't ever want to be touching data like that. They actually, they when you were buying services from them, they would interstitch all cut to the buying service who would handle all of it for you, then send back oh, when this transaction was completed. Okay, great. Yeah, they paid for the thing you told us to charge them for. Here you go. Here's the data. You better record it. And so the, the record actually lived with that company that did the transaction handling. and it was part of the API that we could go and fetch data or, or set up subscriptions because I think they were really focusing on subscriptions. So all that was built into the financial portal, I guess is a good way to put it. So I never had to touch it. I think it's probably the wisest way to do it. It's also the, it's most hands-off, but it's also probably the clunkiest because then I was introduced to a term called dunning while working at this company that I'd never heard of before. And it's apparently this process of how do you handle a financial transaction? It goes through all these steps Maybe it's not specifically for financial, but it was like there's a number of steps that have to be completed before the transaction be, can be considered done and the flow of it all. And there's quite a lot of things that have to go on. So anyway, yeah, that was kind of a rabbit trail there, but that was interesting. <laughs> Popping the stack back up a couple of times. Well, let me ask I'm, you a question. Let me, okay, let me, let me pop ahead. it back even further. Oh, okay. All right. So you said you have a file cabinet. Yes, I do. Is there a reason you're not digitizing what's in the file cabinet that you don't need the actual hard copy of still? Like, why are, uh, you, why are you allowing the cabinet to expand instead of cycling out the old stuff to, you know, scanning it and keeping a digital copy? It's inertia. It's okay. easy for me to, to take what's, what was mailed to me. And yet I actually opt for them to mail me things because I want, I want my own copy. I do not want whatever it is to be, oh, you can go and 
access your uh, monthly statement anytime on our website. That's not what I'm looking no, for. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean yeah. taking those statements that you have, scanning them in, getting the file on your local computer, and then archiving that with your standard backup process that you do. Yeah. So what I started to do for a while there was I had the physical copies and then like for credit card statement, mm -hmm. I would go and download the file from them. So I had a virtual copy too. Because when you scan your own document, you're creating a basically bitmap, right? It's, it's large in size, whereas the source PDF may be one tenth the size. So I was like, all right, I got the best of both worlds here. I got the physical copy and then I got the virtual copy and they're identical and I don't have to do the scanning. I just, I create a little filing system, directory system in my file server. But I think that got interrupted when I had to do something to the file server. And I, think, that I think some of the scan systems will actually scan directly to PDF and it's not saving it as a bitmap. It's maybe just saving it as a JPEG inside the PDF. Okay. So, that, so there's like receipt scanning systems, specific systems like that? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, just scanners in general. Like I know, okay. like, uh, granted, I have a uh, professional photo scanner, but I know... Yeah. It's a little different. It, well, yes and no, because it's a professional photo scanner. It's meant for scanning film. Like right. scanning paper receipts was n not anywhere in the focus for this thing. But mm -hmm. I know that there's a button you can click and it will immediately scan and save as PDF. Okay. So... And, uh, you know, with film, you're not going to save a film a scan as a PDF. You're never no. going to do no. that. No, that's so, not a thing you're ever going to do. <laughs> I assume right. that type of feature is also available in the same lower grade Epson scanners. So that actually would be a, a very good resolution to some of this. Where I can go and log in and get a virtual copy, mm -hmm. do that. And if I can't, or if I'm just feeling lazy, scan it in. Keep the physical copy for, I don't know, a year maybe. What I want the physical copy for, it really comes in handy when you have to prove someone something, and it's like this... Let's just consider the, the most recent episode about how evidence can be fabricated, right? So I have this thing that was printed two years ago for this month's statement and shows very clearly that there was not this charge on my account then. Now it's in my history. I don't know what the hell happened mm -hmm. or something. So that's partly the if ever I have to go and prove something, or if I get audited, right, uh, for tax reasons, I don't know why I would get audited, but just in case I do, I've got all these stuff lying around, and I can hand it to the IRS and say, here you go, uh, it's in there. Yeah, here's a huge box. This is your problem, not mine. Yeah. Yeah, you wanted to audit me, here's all the data, go ahead. I, I don't think they would take very kindly to that, but they're the ones that audited me. Well, so I'm I... actually pretty sure they probably have a system where they just dump everything onto a scanner. Probably. It scans, OCRs it, and then they get, you know a spreadsheet that fills out everything automatically for them. Right. I, I think I want that system. That's what I want. Right? right? Yeah. And, and well, yeah. technically, well, no, the IRS isn't a government agency. Because if it was, then that would actually be public domain because anything the government produces is is public. So is, are they an extension of the Fed? I'm pretty sure they are. Oh, wow. So that means they're private. Whoa. Let me, let me double check that, but I'm almost positive yeah, the IRS is not a government institution. That opens up kind of a lot of discussion and things. It's a, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've really been trying to think about this is completely unrelated to credit cards and receipts, but the whole Fed being private thing, I've really been trying to wrap my head around the implications of that. Like at the very center of our company, our, our okay, country's I'm, I'm, banking system. I have to, I have to correct myself. Oh. Um, the Internal Revenue Service is uh, part of the United States federal government. Okay. It's what branch? Um, Department of Treasury. Okay. So that's, Executive branch? 
Uh, yes. Okay. That makes sense. Well, I guess my rant is no longer meaningful. <laughs> but just trying to wrap my head around the, the private element, uh, the private aspect of the Fed. Well, and that is not... private. Yeah, I, I don't understand how that can possibly be. Because right? they made it so by passing laws in the early 1900s, I think it was. By fiat, it becomes so, yeah. That's, that, well, that's, that's currency, right? That's what currency is, is by fiat, this is valuable. There you go, boom. This piece of paper is valuable, and that one is not. So that, let's, let's table that for another, another, that could be an interesting topic to dive into, but uh, not in this one. Popping the stack way back up to the top again. Okay, so keeping receipts for important stuff that you think you might return, like, you know, like produce, if it's bad, you want to be able to return it in a day or two and go up to the, the grocery store or whatever they call it around where you are. Grocery store. Pro okay, but, but like, is there a chain or something? Oh, I mean, there's I Walmart, so. and then Walmart. there's the small, you know, mom and pop shop. Okay, I guess not. Yeah, that's right, you are in a very rural area, so it makes sense that they would not have chains. But, uh, anywho, stuff like that, that may go bad or that I'll need to get too soon, or like, like you get a set of sheets from Target or something. And then you sleep on them once and find that you have an allergic reaction to something in how they were made. And so now you need to return that kind of stuff. So keep it, keep the receipt long enough to try everything out that you've bought. And then at that point, digitize it and throw it away. Maybe that's a good policy. Or three months, whichever comes sooner. Because if you haven't returned it after three months, you're not going to. Yeah. And at that point, you might be outside of the return window anyway. Right. The exception being Costco, which I think they would take returns years later. I don't know how they do that. But the, I've, I've seen people that return mattresses they've slept on for years. And they return the mattress. Like, this doesn't work anymore. I don't know how Well, I happens. guess if the mattress had a lifetime warranty. I, can't, I guess it must. Yeah. So, that, anyway, another side note. Okay, so receipts don't need to be kept for a long period of time. And once they're recorded, right? So, so I get back into the habit of recording my receipts again. I won't need to keep them. Okay. That's relatively straightforward. For service things that have like a monthly statement or something, then scan, keep some amount. But So if, I, if I'm the one that scans the physical document that I received, I feel very confident in the progeny of that scan, right? But now after that last episode, it's got me thinking like, how could I watermark it so I know it was me that did it? <laughs> Stenography or whatever that term is that we were talking about. I still haven't had to be able to dive into the code you sent. Yeah, I've been waiting on for you to do your part. Well, yeah, because I've moved. Uh, right? Excuses, excuses. Yeah, I know. I know. It's not, oh, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Oh. See? An excuse is when you're trying to wiggle out of something. An explanation is when you're trying to wiggle not. out of something. No, no. But no, justify no. your wiggling out of something. <laughs> okay. If that's what you need. Right. So I suppose that's actually a good thought. The way to prove, and this sounds absurd. Like, why would I need to do this? I'm the one that scanned this. I physically remember doing that but my memory's not the best, right? So if I build a policy whereby everything I scan, I then watermark or, or have something that only I know about, then unless it's detectable by somebody else, and I don't put it past, if the FBI wants to target me for some reason to investigate my files and somehow figure out, hey, he's watermarking these somehow, we better figure out his watermark process so we can duplicate it or something. That's, uh I really hate this because now I'm going into this weird, this deep well of suspicion and a whole lot of extra effort for what gain, really? What gain? I, we're not sponsored anyway. by TarSnap, but this is what I would recommend TarSnap because uh, 
Not even Colin has access to your files when you put them there. So Right. Maybe we should get sponsored by them. We've mentioned them several times on the show. <laughs> nah, no. We're, we're, we're independent and we like it that way. Okay, so that's a good call. So that's physical stuff and, and credit cards and, and statements and things. The other part of this discussion that I kept wondering about, we've talked about companies and how they're handling our data. And I have a deep mistrust over what they're going to do with my data. So my default is just not to give them that data if I can help it, right? And nowadays when I browse and the site says, oh, accept these cookies or not, I tell them no, right? I always reject every cookie, even the performance ones. Oh, that, that I don't know what they mean by performance cookie, but who knows? Seems like there's a very strictly defined categories, right? And I just say no to everything. Do you actually think that's doing anything? So because I'm a cynic, no. <laughs> I kind of yeah. think that it's just the, oh yeah, cute, click here, make yourself feel better. Right. That, I was hoping you'd take a different stance because that's how I feel too. <laughs> well, right. Uh, yeah, so I guess it doesn't really matter what I do there. Cynically, I think it doesn't matter at all. Okay, so this, this, you're because, discovering okay. what cookies they put on your system, not what data they were retained. Correct. Right? And we don't have look, the right to be forgotten in the United States. Right. And we don't have GPDR and all of that. So. Right. Do I so think. California's trying. Yeah. Do I think that in Europe, if you are a European citizen and you're ac accessing a European site and you click whatever button it is that you click and it means whatever, are they going to follow it? More likely than not, they probably are. Uh, they got some or, teeth over there in their justice system. Or there's a there's a greater possibility that they are. Maybe right. it's not fifty one percent, but it's it's close. If a service is on the level, then more likely that, than not that you would be getting that. But in Barring here, lazy programmers that say one thing and do another. Right, but here in the U.S., yeah, not a chance. Not a chance. No, it's just really foolhardy to think they're not collecting everything and doing it all. For a while there, I was using Amazon credit card. It was great because I used Amazon for a lot of things. This is back before it was, you can't almost buy any consumer product of any kind without it being flooded by 40 or 50 fakes or bad, bad copies from China that drove everybody else out. But back in the glory days, if there ever was such a thing, I was buying a lot of stuff on Amazon. And so I had the Amazon credit card and they gave you really good uh, cash back, like 5% cash back on Amazon things every month. So I was like, great, this is great. And then I realized somewhere along the way, it's like, oh, what are they doing with all this data? Why would they give you such a sweet deal? What, what is it there? Oh, they're building buying habits. Hmm. I actually stopped using it. That's why I laugh when people are like, oh, let me use my grocery store card. Like, <laughs> that's literally allowing them to profile you. Yep. And you yep. don't think they have an agreement with every other grocery store to exchange mm -hmm. data? Yep. It's too profitable not to. And like on those and, store cards, yeah. you're usually not really even getting a deal. Mm -hmm. No, no. They're, what they're doing is they're restoring the price down to roughly what it should be to begin with. Of course, now with our inflationary everything, I, I guess I can't really say what the price should be, honestly. If I walk into the grocery store and my cereal box of cereal is $8 for not the family size, just the regular size, I'm like, that's that's not priced right. But... Things are priced according to what people will pay, not what they're actually intrinsically worth. So back or, in the day, I actually, I knew somebody at, uh, at Walgreens. And uh, so the Walgreens card, I was like, hey, can you like pass me like five of those? And they're like, yeah, sure. Here you go. Hmm. 
So then I just had five of them that weren't actually registered to anyone, but were right. still valid. And like a couple of them, I was like allowing friends to use as well. They'd scan it so that they had it on their phone. So whenever they'd go in, they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is, this is the number. Um, so whatever data they were getting off of that account must have been really weird because like, wow, this person really shops at Walgreens a lot. And they're getting all sorts of crazy stuff. Wow. Yeah, that that's pretty amusing. I, for a long time, would run through the web without JavaScript on mm -hmm. or, or with a no script or some form of that on. And I remember one of the companies I was working for, I couldn't really help them troubleshoot what was going on with various things because I didn't turn it on for them. I'm like, why are you any different? I don't work on, I, I'm not a software developer here. I'm, I'm operations. So, uh, so that they actually could tell in their log files, there'd be like a hole when I came on to use their stuff. Cause it, like they had the actual Apache log hit from when I made the request. And then there would be no corresponding, uh, data log in their data tracking service or whatever. And they'd be like, well, that must've been him came from inside our company and it was not triggered. So that's probably Jeff, right? Yeah. I think I had one guy actually tell me just, just stop, just don't. Just don't. You're actually making things worse. <laughs> oh, whoops. I guess that means that instead your system should be better, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to support customers like myself who don't want your tracking stuff. Yeah, you were, uh, you were providing them a test environment. I guess I was, yeah. So I was doing them a, 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 posit a service. Yeah, I was giving them a service that they didn't otherwise have. They didn't care for it, but I was doing it nonetheless. <laughs> right. So... I guess uh, going back to the top of this part of the discussion, I don't think me telling them no to cookies is really doing much other than making me feel better about it. Kind of like recycling these days. Uh -huh. uh, it's become much more common knowledge that recycling is not economical. And whereas before we could generally pluck the, the stuff that was kind of profitable out and ship it in mass over to, say, the shores of India or China or somewhere, and they would handle it. They're not doing that anymore. Both, both of those countries have largely shut down accepting our refuse. They already have too much of it. They don't want any more. And so now we don't have a cheap place to throw our recyclables, so a lot of it is getting incinerated or thrown away. Well, and there was a lot of it where we were just shipping it to other countries to be incinerated yeah, because that's what they were doing with it. But, hey, yeah. we felt clean. Mm -hmm. Right. It was not being burned in our backyard, therefore it was not our problem. And we recycled it, right? What they do with it over there is their deal. Yeah, they're being naughty, not us. We're being good boys <laughs> and girls. They're being the bad right. ones. Yeah, so I think it's much more known. If, if, you, if this is not known, if this is news to you, listener, we can have a more in-depth conversation about that. Just ping us in the channels or whatever. It seems, it's, it's kind of like that. I recycled, yay. Oh, okay, let's, let's back up. Recycling aluminum cans, that's easy. That's really straightforward. You wash the cans, you, you crush and smelt them, and then there you got more aluminum again, right? You got more impurities, but it's... Aluminum is... For the, one of the most abundant elements in this planet, aluminum is actually surprisingly difficult to get out of the ground. Economically, right? So it makes sense to recycle your aluminum cans, but a lot of the other stuff, not so much. Some of the some of the plastic and paper. Yeah, metal yeah. is just easy to easy to deal with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Plastics. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a complex chemical process to make those and then break them down so then they can be made again. And yeah. Right. Which is I'm seeing a shift to a lot of like companies are now providing straws made of paper, just purely paper. Yeah, those are horrible. To, well, okay. Yeah, I don't like. I don't care for them. I feel them getting soggy as I'm using them. I get it. 
But I also recognize that they biodegrade in some number of months as opposed to never for one of the plastic straws. And also I've been seeing some hybrids where you've got, it's 95% paper with a very thin plastic film around it to keep it all together. That seems like the best strategy because you get most of it to biodegrade. You're cutting down on the amount of uh, waste you're creating. But I'm actually wondering how long it's going to be until straws is a personal thing. Where actually, yeah, you have your straw. It'll probably be made of glass or something like that that you have, you keep with you. And when you go to a restaurant, you use your straw. So then the restaurant doesn't have to supply one. They don't have to deal with one. And it's up to you to supply the straw. And then you can have designer straws and fancy. I'm sure there's right. an industry there. Mm-hmm. It sounds very European also. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how Americans expect ice and everything. So I've been told, I just drink what's put in front of me, right? But it's, apparently the expectation elsewhere is that if you want ice, you better ask for it. Mm-hmm. So I, it, sounds like, it sounds like a very European approach. Like, no, nope, we're not going to provide straws anymore. We've decided that the waste is not worth it. So bring your own straw if you want it. Otherwise, tough. I mean, I guarantee right? if Apple made a straw, glass straw with <laughs> like a laser etched <laughs> Apple in it, and some like fancy like finger hook or something so you could use it. I guarantee people would be lining up around the block to buy it. And it would be endless column inches devoted to studying the hook mm-hmm. on the straw. Yeah. And how, how revolutionary this was. Just, how yes. bold and everything. Apple, I want 10%. That's all I'm saying. I want 10%. <laughs> They'll get right back to you on that, I'm sure. Yeah. No, that's probably a good point. The reason to divert into this part of the discussion is it, it, just like recycling, when I, when I tell it no cookies, I think it's just to make me feel better more than anything. It doesn't really help. I, I don't... I guess if I just... Uh, I don't like the modern web. Have I complained about this before? Yeah, uh, okay. I, well, again. yes and no. I think... I think you've complained about it. Well, I mean, I know you've complained about it before. I know we've talked about it before. I don't know how many episodes it's gotten into. I'm sure at some okay. point it has. Right. But yeah, the, the modern web is, is kind of a dumpster fire. It really kind of is. Uh, I'm looking forward to, I keep reading up on uh, web 3.0, like decentralized. I know this, this is a loaded term, but like blockchain-based data sharing. Or what's, what's that? There's a term, uh, distributed information, I guess. There's, uh, I was reading about this just yesterday, and I can't remember the terms. But uh, instead of like this very highly dynamic thing we've got going on. You, you, you're basically composing, you've got information that's just shared already on various information chains, and you would go to the nearest node of that information chain to get the data, and it's already distributed, right? Now, I don't know how that works with the very, very dynamic modern web tools that we have for a lot of things. Right? Uh, well, so there's, there's some dynamic nature that that could have, because obviously you can update the blockchain with with new data. That's how wallets have differing balances over time. They update the balance of the wallet. Right. I get that. There would be a fundamental limit as to how fast that could happen because of, well, depending on how many people are using it, you have a scale issue with block size. And then you have how often are blocks minted that comes into play. Um, So there's possibilities there, but there's also a possible lot of complications and that chain would end up getting massive real quick. It seems like it's a return to early days of the web where things were very, very static. Mm -hmm. You were publishing documents. It was a hypertext, hypertext transport protocol, right? It was 
text, right? You got a block of text with links within it to go to other blocks of text. Now, think missed. So returning to decentralized information structures would be kind of like that, because you're basically publishing it ahead of time and it doesn't change. So, so many of our web processes, which are very, very, very dynamic, you'd have like a split. Like the core content or core information or like this news article or whatever would come from the information change, but then the window dressing around it would be dynamically loaded from classic, or not classic, but like a web 2.0 kind of paradigms using uh, JavaScripty things. Well, you could you could use IPFS as the back end to actual store the end of the data which you would want to be able to be updated quickly. Because then when somebody pulls the information from the blockchain, they get the IPFS reference address to then reference to then get that chunk of data. So if it's like an right. image or whatever, well, then you can just update that image and then change where it's pointing, where the blockchain is pointing to, and you're done. Right. Seems like a, one of the things I like about it. It's a very, you can repudiate, I guess. If someone says, uh, if someone changes that or tries to change that, it's, it's, it's immutable, right? It's on the blockchain. Uh, it's been given an address on the blockchain. Uh, within this block, it's this item, and it's published forever, and that's just the way things are. So good luck trying to... Well, that, and as long else. as it's in your, you know, quote-unquote wallet, no one else would be able to change it. That's true, yeah. There's a lot of implications to a lot of this stuff, which I'm only just really scratching the surface on in some of my study. It seems... I've tried, for a long time, I was just like, oh, blockchain. Oh, that's a trendy word that every company's trying to build a blockchain something. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it, right? And screw that. But leading into the, the Carter episode, and, and then after that, too, just kind of the studying up on NFTs and, and things, there's a lot of potential here for actual, not just marketing buzzword stuff, but real society-changing kind of stuff. Like, I talked with Claire last episode about honor being part of the system. Well, if you can definitively say, yes, I published this at this time. It is now distributed everywhere. It is impossible to disagree that I published this with my key from my wallet. That brings honor, some degree of honor, back into that system. Does it not? Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of going out on a limb with my thoughts here, but I'm going to say yes and no. Um, okay. Because... A, you're not going to publish every single thing publicly. Right. So th there's no way, oh, well, you just didn't publish that. And hypothetically, if, if you were, yeah, you had data that was illegal, I don't know, plans to blow something up or whatever. Um, <laughs> you're not going to store that in the public blockchain. You're obviously not going to make that public. So you having it and it not being public is not going to strike anyone as odd. They're going to go, well, duh, obviously you wouldn't have published that. Well, maybe there's a hybrid model here. You publish the public key that you then would digitally sign stuff with. You're not publishing the data, just the, the key that could prove that, yeah, I'm the only one that's in control of this key. I published it at this point. It's here. This this section of the blockchain and that and that block doing, it looks like this. All the stuff that's on my drive is signed by that. Therefore, it's coming from me. And the other person that would be able to, prove, uh, to fake that would ha have to have your private key. Okay, that would only so work if the file system on every single drive that you have is somehow tied in with this system to be able to do that. And that doesn't negate the possibility that you might have a Western Digital USB spinning rusted drive that you also plug into your computer. I mean, th at the end of the day, I think the problem would be proving a negative. 
You can't prove that you don't have something. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right there. I have no idea how we got onto this topic, but this is... <laughs> yeah. Pop the stack for us, because I've forgotten. How do we get back? Uh, uh, we went into blockchain land for a while. Um, right. I think I started mixing in the last episode stuff, uh, the, what Clara was saying, and I'm still kind of rattled by that a little bit, I'll be honest. Can kind of think about that. Yeah, as I said to uh, someone in the Telegram channel a couple weeks ago, before that episode, when, when I was working on scheduling it, um, is, you know, we're going to make you a very sad panda when this episode comes out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But on yeah. the, to, to, to pop all the way back to the beginning. Okay, that's good. That's good. As far as data retention, my standard kind of default is I would rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Um, and if that means it, I need to burn a little bit of space wherever I live for storage, okay. Uh, for me, let's, let's hypothetically say that I had to fill up four of those, you know, five drawer filing cabinets with, with all of the stuff, with all of the records. First off, yeah. that's an enormous amount of records and it receipts. Is. That is and, a lot. Okay. But even, what are you doing that you have right. all that much data? So let's, let's imagine that's like a life worth of, of receipts and records and all that stuff. Okay. What we're talking about there is maybe six feet by two feet by, I don't know, eight feet. Like that's really not a lot of space. Realistically, guess not. No. Um, I mean, you could yeah, you could rent uh, right. you know a five a five by five storage unit at some local you know storage place for probably thirty dollars a month and have everything stick in there. Yeah, if if I was insisting on physical copies. Yeah, yeah. if you were you know insisting on physical copies. So I don't I don't think this, the cost of actually storing it is really that great. And I think this is reflected in the digital world because companies never want to delete anything because why would you? It's so cheap to just buy a bigger hard drive and right. save what you have. So don't delete it because someday that data might be valuable. You might need right. it. Right. Uh, for the consumers, though, there is an upper limit to how much do I want to save? At some point, the file server you built or the all the devices you've put together to save your stuff, they, have, they age out. The hardware dies. They have a burden to maintain it replace it, upgrade it, bring it across. So you do have this maintenance burden that you're taking on by choosing to keep everything, which is, I'm trying to avoid that. Now, I have a file server because I got a lot of stuff. So this actually ties but, back uh, into an episode a couple months ago, I think it was. I don't know. Where I talked about mm. the digital memory hole. Oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. I remember that. You know, the, the reason we know so much about the past was because people saved stuff. And there's a lot today that is not permanent. Like we talked about receipts being, you know, heat sensitive. So like they're going to eventually fade or get blacked out completely. and You're not going to be able to see. Right. So there's part of me that just from like, a you know, wannabe historian looks at it and goes, I don't know what people in 300 years are going to wish we had saved. And at that point, yeah. I'm going to be gone. So I'm not going to care if they rummage through my receipts and see what I bought when, like, it's not going to matter to me. Well, he buys an awful lot of pineapples. What's going on with that? Right? What is it with this guy and pineapples? What are pineapples? Just gonna, just gonna leave that. Maybe, just maybe there aren't pineapples there. anymore. Yeah. Maybe you know, well, like the banana yeah. apocalypse. There's been a pineapple apocalypse, and pineapples don't exist anymore. <laughs> and well, they're misnamed. 
in almost every language on the planet, the pineapple is like Aranha or something. And for some reason, we decided to call it a pineapple instead. We just bucked the trend. So the name should go away. But the, the fruit itself, I think, the places where it thrives, it thrives very well. So, I don't know. They just pick pineapple out of a hat. I happen to like pineapple a lot. And it's, it's kind of somewhat of an unusual fruit. Like, who brings home a pineapple, right? You Maybe do. Some people must, because I do, yeah. I, I like them. So I buy them, I cut them down, and I enjoy them over the next week or two. But it's, it's just an unusual thing, perhaps. So I picked it out of a hat as a representative sample of something unusual that someone would be like, why is he buying Hey, you're not one of those weirdos that puts pineapple on pizza, are you? Oh, heck no. Okay. No. Okay. This is Texas. We don't do such things. I just wanted to make sure. Actually, it's, uh, it's uh, so I've been told, it's actually a very popular flavor combination down in Mexico. So it's not really fair to say that we don't do that in Texas because there's quite a lot of diffusion zone between Texas and Mexico, right? So... I'm sure in Texas it's very common for there to be pineapple on pizza, but nowhere in, in my household, no, we don't do pineapple on pizza. And if, like, we're in a group outing, I'm not doing the Hawaiian thing. I'm not ordering a Hawaiian pizza for someone. If you want Hawaiian pizza, you can order your own dirty pizza yourself. Yeah, you can go home and eat that on your own time. <laughs> eat your shame there at home without no pineapple on pizza. So now that I've put a line in the sand here, watch, I get, uh, I get some hate mail about that. That'd be fine. I'm sure there's at I'll least one listener that. that likes pineapple pizza, so they might come to your Probably. defense. <laughs> Wait, someone who likes pineapple pizza would defend the person who's saying he No, 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 it? because you actually do like it. You're just playing devil's advocate. That's, that's what I'm saying. Wait, what? Yeah. Anyway, moving no. along. Um... No, you can't just do that and drop that. No, never. Okay, fine. Moving along. That was, that's a lie. I don't like it. Moving along. Right. So data retention, physical stuff, largely handled. Digital stuff. I have a problem. I'm like a digital hoarder, too. I've got backups going back 15 years. Why? I don't know. It has come in handy on occasion, but more often than not, when I'm like, oh, I need to figure out, did I still have that file in 2010? And I go and look, and I've already looked for it there once or twice, and I didn't find it then, so I'm not going to find it now, but I forgot that it wasn't there. So I still have these backups around that I can go look at. They do come in handy on occasion, but at some point I got to think, all right, I do not need my data from 2010. I haven't touched it in eight or nine or ten years. I don't need it, right? About the only things I would want off there would be like creative stuff. There's also an aspect, and maybe this is maybe this is I don't know, sinister, evil, malicious. I don't know that. I there's some things that I just like having backups of, so that I can go back and prove something. Like perfect example is that uh, the other day in a certain channel somewhere, I won't get into specifics because I don't want to call the person out. Right, okay. Yeah. They made some claims about what someone on the development team had told them about a project several years ago. Well, I have logs, so I can grep those logs and then pull it up and then go directly to that spot in the logs and look at the conversation before and after and screenshot it and go, yeah, so not exactly like you're saying. Now, it's right. possible they were just misremembering and they weren't just making up some crap off the top of their head. But they may have been making up some crap off the top of their head. I don't know. And, you know, we're talking about something that was said in three, four years prior. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. So being right. able to check that in a matter of, you know, 15 seconds and see, okay, what were they told about this? Okay, this is what they were told. I'm not misremembering it. Because it was possible I was. And I go, oh, wow, they were told that. They shouldn't have been. So, like, that's nice from 
the aspect of being able to verify your own memory when things are said. Right. I have IRC logs dating back to 2006, I think, because they, they take practically no space, right? So 15 years of IRC logs does start to add up, especially when you're on a bunch of channels, but still, it's, it's text and it compresses very well. So that, I, I've used that actually quite a lot, even to this day. I'm not really on IRC much anymore. Don't, it takes too much focus that I can't afford to spend on that. Yeah, I still refer back to those sometimes when I'm talking to people that I spend a lot of time on IRC with or, or something. And like, yeah, actually, no, that wasn't what happened back then. Normally, it's like a, a joke or, or to prove something silly. It's like not life or death. I, I don't think I've ever had a life or death situation where my IRC logs saved me from certain death. Right. I don't think that that's likely to happen. It's like a hacker wet dream or something. You know? <laughs> That kind of thing. And why did you learn Perl? Just in case. You know, that kind of thing. Well, that was a terrible reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, learning Perl in general is terrible. So, yeah. Right. Well, I did learn Perl back a long time ago. Willingly, even. But that was because there were several tools at the company I was working at, and they were all written in Perl. So if I wanted to contribute to them, I had to learn the language. Yeah. There, there yeah. are valid reasons to learn Perl. Like learning right. that you shouldn't learn Perl. <laughs> but that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> I'm going to learn this here and prove that it's terrible for you so you don't have to. I'm, I'm doing this for you, listener. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a very JT thing. So that actually, wow, we're not going to get into this now. Um, okay. But that actually brings up an interesting conversation that I had with a friend of mine the other day about the Wharf hypothesis. I don't have any idea what this is. So let me, I'm just going to quote this because I don't want to do it misjustice so this is you not getting into the point right i'm just i'm just going to touch on it and then move on and it's it's around the principle of linguistic okay. relativity okay and that is a principle that the structure of a language itself affects its speaker's worldview or cognition aka when you speak a language or when you know a language it adjusts the way that you perceive the world i absolutely agree with that well, yeah, I, I agree with it because of the programming paradigm if I know QT and C++. So when I'm faced with a problem where I have to think about how to solve it, my brain immediately goes into that default mode of how I would accomplish that without language. You would accomplish it completely different with another language. So that's, that's why it popped into head. So there's a little tangent okay. and back. All right, back. But I don't think of that as a hypothesis. I think of that as, duh, yeah. I think that's, that's provable, even. Anyway. How many times have we had to pop the stack in this episode? Uh, all of this the times. Very, <laughs> it's been a very ADHD episode, unfortunately. Uh, I hope you were able to keep up, listeners. <laughs> um, trying to close the loop on data retention topics. I think we resolved the, the financial stuff, the statements, the, the receipts. Lamented how I'm keeping old backups that don't really benefit me, so I think I'm going to go delete a lot of those old ones. Anything, I don't know, seven years? Does that seem reasonable? Unless plenty long enough to keep a backup? Sure. I guess it, you have to be, if there's something like, I was audited by the IRS in 2012, let's say. I would probably want to keep my records around there just in case. Mm -hmm. So some data, no matter how old it is, you still need it, right? And I, I have seen court cases that hinged on someone still had their computer that they stopped using in 2003, and they were able to get it working again and get data off of the drive to prove something that happened 20 years ago that now is relevant in the court case or something, right? So you can never know for sure, right? And so I guess the default, the lazy approach was, we'll just keep it all forever. 
you know, just no big deal. Just keep it on. Yeah. You never know. Right. But that, that I've really come to recognize that over the years as I've collected data, that becomes a burden to maintain and I don't want to spend the time on it. Right. So now I got to shuffle this data around. I don't create a lot of data, you know, if I'm really evaluating how much data I have created personally over the last 20 years, this podcast is probably 60% of the data that I've produced just because, you know, audio and the fidelity. That's how little I've actually produced. I mostly would write text documents and things. So, yeah. So for me, I, I don't know. I, I kind of look at it as, yeah, like I said at the beginning, save everything because at the end of the day, I'd rather have it and not need it. And yeah. I, if you're not super, super crunched for space, it, it isn't difficult to store everything. Yeah. I mean, like I said, even if, even if somebody's living the van life and they're trying to keep things down to a minimum, well, it doesn't mean you can't own a five by five storage locker somewhere for, you know, $30 right. a month. And that's just, that's right. your permanent backup solution for everything. Yeah. yeah. Actually. Yeah. I think that's appropriate. And for the digital stuff using the, like we were joking about earlier, the tar snap service, that's a great way to do it. A lot of network appliance, network appliance, uh, storage appliances, consumer grade are built on FreeNAS or, or ZFS in the background anyway, because it's just so stinking awesome. There's really nothing like it out there. So I would expect most, most appliances are built roughly around ZFS concepts. Maybe not always using ZFS. Like, like Synology does their own thing and... There's another vendor I can't remember now that does their own thing too, but they're all they're all copying what ZFS is doing is what my understanding is because it's just too powerful. So if you're using ZFS, it's trivial for you to send a snapshot to an offsite location. The non-trivial part is how big is your snapshot and what's your bandwidth like. So I think Synology might be using ButterFS. Okay. Wow. Or maybe that maybe that's somebody that, else. Actually. One of them is because hmm. I remember having a conversation a year or so ago, maybe two years ago. At this maybe point, it's maybe of, it's Drobo that's using of that. someone who reached out to them to get the uh, source because they had written something that interfaced directly with ButterFS on the device, so they were able to get the source out of whatever company it was. Oh. Okay, actually, you are right. I googled for Synology ButterFS and I see a page here: How ButterFS protects your company's data, right on Synology's website. I think you're right. Okay, that's cool. That's what uh, that's actually pretty intelligent, I think. Going with the is proven the right word? Have they proven all all the modes of ButterFS by now? Uh I don't know. I think there I know there was one that there was like don't use this, and maybe that's still the case. I don't know. Honestly, I haven't really mm -hmm. dug into it. That may have been fixed I by now. ButterFS raid raid five equivalent and raid six equivalent, I yeah. think they were saying don't trust it. Is what I remember. That was like four that years was, ago. That was a while ago, so I don't, I don't know what the state of that would, is now. I should ask Neil. I would hope that they would. Uh, Neil Gompa yeah. would know, but I haven't asked him in a while because I rarely think about ButterFS. So. Right. I don't use it. I use ZFS. Right. So it's about time for me to really look at replacing my NAS. Uh, so I've got some drives in there that are really long in tooth, and I, I have some backups, but it's, I'm getting to that age now where I've got to start being concerned about parts failing and the redundancy going down too far. So it's time for me to build a new appliance. And I've actually considered seriously just buying an IX something or other or something. Yeah, the minis are pretty good. They're very well constructed and they're reasonably priced. And it's built on a system that I understand down underneath. So again, we're shilling for another company, it sounds like. Yeah. I, it's not I, shilling. I, really I, need actually, to, I like the product. I really need to get some sponsorship deals here. <laughs> 
I just like the product. Yeah, they're good know? products. I like their products. It's good products. So I guess it's not shilling. It's just an earnest endorsement of uh, well, this is probably what I'll end up doing. But I'm open to alternatives. Perhaps listeners have another idea or something superior or they have something to say about that choice. And also, I guess what we settled on our policies may or may not be better for may not be what everybody likes. So I'd like to hear if someone disagrees, like, oh, keep every receipt forever. And I would like to hear a reason why. Or I see a lot of people nowadays just throw the receipts away. They don't even bother to accept them. So I, I think it's becoming more and more the norm that they'll email you a receipt if you really want to, or they'll send it to you by text, but they're not going to print something for you. I think that's the, the new normal for a lot of the small services. Big box stores will still do their receipt thing. But like we were talking about earlier in this uh, discussion, Lowe's, if it's keeping all your f transactions uh, associated with the card that was made on them, do you even need the receipt anymore? I wouldn't think so. Of course, if you no longer have the card, then that becomes very problematic. Right, but you can also, I mean, Lowe's can, you can have a Lowe's account and then everything will just get assigned to that because your cards get tagged with the account. So then it doesn't matter what card you use, it's on the account in the database, which then they can do the email receipt directly to your email that's on file with the account because it's everything is a giant database. It is. It is it's all databases all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've covered kind of a lot of ground in this one, but I hope our listeners have some input on this. If, if we're barking up the wrong tree on our policies, I would really like to get a good retention policy kind of set down especially moving right now, I have this opportunity moved, but I have this opportunity to kind of shed old patterns and replace them with different ones. And I think this is a golden opportunity to really consider how do I want to be retaining stuff. But like the data builds up fast, all the mailings come in, you know, it's like two months of mailings that I haven't really addressed and now it's like piling up. So I've got to do something soon. So let's just tell us what you think. We'd love to hear back from you. And there's lots of ways to contact us. We got the fireside. We have Email seems to be the preferred method. You can email jt at mindstripmedia.com. I think also if you go on Fireside, it ends up that going to that email. Also. Yeah, there's a contact you page there. That if, you, if you use that, it'll go to me. There. Mm -hmm. So we have pretty active channels on Matrix and on Telegram, and there's also Twitter. So anyway, you would like to reach out to us, give us a shout, and uh, we will get back to you. We do promise to read and try to respond to every email. We don't promise to read it here on an episode. Speaking of, but, we actually do have a piece of feedback that is ooh. somewhat potentially relevant to this. Okay. Um, in episode 50, when we were talking about projects that we wanted, uh, you had talked about the screenshot thingy that you wanted. Uh, right, and yeah. we got an email from Archie. Uh, he wrote, I listened to episode 50 and one of the projects sounded like something I had written years ago. It is a couple bash scripts that use gnome screenshot, hashes a name, uploads the file to a server, and then puts the URL in the paste buffer. I have not worked on this for years. Uh, before now, it was not even a Git repo, but it is now, and he gave us the link, which I will put in the show notes. He says, oh, it's very basic and relies on a lot of things to work, but it's simple and brings various tools together and worked years ago. That's I cool. can't really call it a project, just something that scratched an itch for me. If the project wasn't useful, no need for a shout out. It is just bash glue. But I told him, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shout out. I'll put the link in the show notes because there may yeah. be somebody out there who looks at it and can use it, or maybe just finds the way that he did something in bash is useful. Oh, I could actually use that, how he did that mm -hmm. on something else. So. Yeah. And almost every open source project started somewhere because someone had an itch that they were trying to scratch. So this is how things begin. 
I'm not going to say that your project will turn into something massive, but this is this is exactly what I hope for in open source. So great work, Archie. Thank you for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. We hope to hear from you listeners. Let us know what you're thinking. JT, any closing thoughts? Uh, just, again, everyone be excellent to each other. Thank you.